This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello, everyone, and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm your host, Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger, and we love SVU. We hate criminals, but we talk about them, and then we talk <laughs> to celebs, which we love. We love celebs. We but love first, it. we Plug the tour. We got to plug first the tour. First, we chit-chat. We, tell, we plug the tour. I'm going to just get... Let me get it out of the way up top. Um... We, as of this episode's release, we will have just wrapped up our full Southern leg. And thank you to everyone who came out to those shows. Um, We will be back out in November, guys. We're going to you, Midwest. We are coming back to Chicago. We are going to be at Zany's in Rosemont on on November 13th. Come out and see us in the Burbs. It's a nice big venue. It's huge. I love Zany's in downtown Chicago as well, but you might not be able to get a ticket because that one is selling out pretty quick. And so come out to Rosemont and see us. I don't believe there is an Alan Jackson's I Love This Bar anymore, but is that what it was called? (laughs) But Uh, No, it's Toby Keith, I think. Oh, Toby Keith's I Love This Bar. But you can still find some good stuff out there. We will be then bopping over to Indianapolis on the 15th of November, Columbus on the 16th, Cleveland on the 17th, Detroit on the 18th, and then Madison, Wisconsin on the 20th. Guys, Please get your tickets. Come see us. So many people are writing us saying, well, I didn't get tickets for the DC show. I waited. Don't wait because some of these shows sell out and we really want to see all of you um, and, you know, have you see our live show, which is, in my opinion, really fucking fun. Uh, And that's it. Lisa, what's going on? I want to tell you a story when you get a chance. Tell me a story. (laughs) Well, just something really funny I thought happened to me in Boston. So I went to Boston for a wedding this past weekend. Um, and we're in the time machine. So I know some of you have like, that happened weeks ago. It did. Um, and 
I'm walking. It's the day before the wedding. So I'm like with my friend Jackie. We're walking the streets and we are maybe going to go to another bar. And this guy behind us, and he's probably 25 feet behind us. He's a little ways behind us. Goes, hey, excuse me. And we both turn around and go, yeah. And then he just starts walking quickly towards us, which was so weird. And the both of us just like got into attack stances immediately because like, why aren't you, why did you stop talking? Why are you coming towards us quickly? It's a very brightly lit area of Beacon Hill, which is like a very nice area of Boston. And I'm kind of like, I don't think you're going to attack us, but what the fuck is going on? And he goes, oh, sorry, I'm just looking for Clink. And I go, wait, what the fuck is going on? Like, and, I, and Jackie goes, like, I thought maybe he listened to your podcast. And then I remembered that when I was trying to make a reservation for dinner earlier, there is a place called Clink, as in clinking your glasses, right two blocks from where we were. So this guy was just rushing towards us to ask us where the bar Clink was. Oh and God. I was having a full out-of-body experience where I thought I was getting attacked, then I thought I was getting recognized, and then it turned out <laughs> I just had to help this man look at Google Maps. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, oh, sorry. Like, you, it was like a drunk, like, Boston-y guy. And he was like, oh, sorry. Like, I didn't realize. And I was like, yeah, you just can't, like, rush towards two women on a dark street at, like, on a Friday night at 11 o'clock. Use your brain, sir. Yeah. But Clink reminds me of Clink Clink from the Jersey Housewives, you know? Oh, yes. Like, but, you know, I've always been associated with the sound of clinking glasses. That's a better. Clinking. That's more positive. I do also want to say we both saw Don't Worry Darling separately. Oh, yes, we did. I saw, I went and saw it with my husband for a little date night. Lisa saw it in New York with a pal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, so much hype. I wanted to see... There was truly... It was annoying because a bunch of stuff I wanted to see, I just missed that weekend. Like, I just missed Nope, Lisa's movie that I'm now I'm going to have to watch it on streaming. I Well, you can also, yeah. Thank you to to all of the listeners who just sent us clips that they took in the theater of Lisa's part, because now I feel like I have seen it. Um, I wonder if I can post the photo. I wonder if it's time, if I could finally put it on the grid and be like, listen... I was in this and I worked with a horse. Yeah, I think it's like maybe once it's on streaming, yeah. but like, yeah, it's not in, in, at least in LA, it's not on in theaters anymore. Cause I wanted to see that and I wanted to see bodies, bodies, bodies. Both had just left the theaters. And so I wasn't super hot on seeing Don't Worry Darling, but it was the best. Everything was so horror and I didn't really want to see horror if it wasn't bodies, 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 cause that seemed like funny horror. So we went. And I really enjoyed going to see it and watching it, but I found a lot of holes in it that I did talk to Lisa about. Yeah, I didn't mind the holes. Like, the moment I saw the trailer before all this drama, I was like, from the moment I saw the trailer, I'm like, I'm seeing this. This is yeah. a genre I enjoy. Um, I I like a, a housewife thriller, what's going on. Yeah. I like That's that. That's what I liked about it. Because it said, it said like thriller when I was looking at all the different movies. Because my husband was at first like, really? And I go, I'm sorry, I'm not going to see one of these nasty rip up people's bodies horror movies. And there really wasn't, I'd already seen Bros, which by the way, everybody go see Bros. It's fucking so funny. And so there was like nothing really else. And so, I, but I, I had a really good time going. And as I said to you, gorgeous, like visually gorgeous. Every outfit on Florence Pugh is like, it was born to be on her body. Like it was just like sewn around her body. Um, Everybody looked so good. Her acting was amazing. 
No, it was an enjoyable thing. It's like, I feel nowadays, it's like, this is the worst. This is the best. This is a scan. And it's like, can I just watch a movie and have a good time? Like, why? Yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, I had a good time. so like, my opinion, where it's like, we're forgetting yeah, yeah. that. I don't know. I loved it. I had a great time. I had a great time and visually gorgeous and amazing acting. And I also thought, okay, there was like a couple things I think like I would have done differently or I like didn't like some of the rules. Like I didn't understand some of the rules of the world as I told you. But- Those things don't bother me. Our friend Kate Berlant is in it. And she's so funny. Um, Asif Ali, so funny in it. And there's an SVU guy in it. There is a detective Yeah, in the guy movie. who plays Cal Dune. The guy who plays Cal Dune is in it. The one who's like, the one who has to fake that he's in a relationship with Rollins for the green card guy. And I deserve some loving too. Um, Start studied. I liked it. I thought it was exciting. I enjoyed watching it. I was like, what's going on? Olivia Wilde's a great actress. And like, give it to me. I don't know. But there are yeah. some issues for sure. But it was hard to find like really in-depth good analysis because- everyone was into the drama and all of that. And so it yes. is like a little frustrating that it's not. Yeah, which I do feel like there is a pretty heavy like undercurrent of misogyny going on where it's like 100%. no one would care about this if it was happening to a male director. Like, oh, you're fucking the female star of your movie. Like no one would care, you know, like. Yeah, actors not getting along, Christian Bale screaming at people. Yeah. It's just like so annoying, but I, it's... And I hope she gets to direct and have a great career and, like, fuck everyone. And we'll, like, it'll be the Britney Spears. Like, and then in the future, it'll be like, wow, we really fucked up. And, you know, we never learn. Yeah. We're just, like, horrific mammals on the planet. Yeah, Monica Lewinsky, a lot of other people we've fucked over. Um, uh, it is, this episode is wide releasing on 1025. I know we have another episode beforehand, but please register to vote if you have not registered to vote. I just saw someone in their stories put that they're, um, they got an email that was like, hello, your voter registration has been canceled. And it was like, not something they did. They didn't move. They didn't do anything. So just double check, just hop on there and double check that you're getting your ballot. Cause I really cannot believe the amount of like, money that is going towards this, like, football player who paid for an abortion but is saying that no one else can have abortions. Like, I just really, you guys, you got to vote for Warnock in Georgia, please. And that's my, that's my daily soapbox about the, about politics. Yeah, everything sucks. My weekly. Well, we don't have to go right into everything sucks. I'm just telling people to vote. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we RuPaul. did that last week. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to give a shout out to Helen. She was wearing a sweater at a show in West Covina. And I said, I'm going to shout you out, bitch. And so <laughs> I'm doing it. So that's that. We <laughs> For the flag. <laughs> Casey, Casey, we just saw Casey's flag, little pink flag. <laughs> but it reminds me of The Simpsons. Do you know the episode I'm talking about? And no. Homer has a little flag in the library and he goes, go school. <laughs> it's the Thomas Edison episode where he's trying to invent stuff. And he's at the school library and they're like, are you a student here, sir? And he goes, yeah, go school. And it's a school <laughs> on his little flag. <laughs> So oh my God, cute. I took a tour of a potential um, elementary school for Rosie and they took us to the library and I like breathed in and the smell like took me back. Like I've been to like regular libraries, but they're just so big. Like kid libraries are so small that like, 
the scent of library book was just like concentrated. And like me and all the other parents on the tour were like, oh my God, I've literally been transported. Like I'm in third grade. <laughs> like it was really wild. The library smell, oh my gosh. Do you know what I mean? I do. I couldn't think of a book smell. I can't really fantasize or feel a um, library smell at the moment. Like so when I, I walked in, it just reminded me of like the cards. We would like sign our names out on books. Like maybe I'm a little older than you and those were gone by the time you were in Bitch, elementary we school. we had cards, but it wasn't you had cards? It was a stamp. It was a stamp with the date. Well, you did a stamp for the date to return, right? But then you would sign your name and like every time you checked out a book, you could see like the last six people who took it out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Everything's cool. What episode are we doing? I, where are we? We got a good episode for you. Let's get started. You're going to love it. All right, guys. We're doing Ulta Cockers. So annoying. Such a Warren Light bullshit. But it's not. Season 20. Is it's this season... I think that's him. Warren is still here. Warren is still there at 20. He came back at like 17 or something. Oh, so just the episode title is 10. So Alta Cockers is 10. Okay. Oh, no, you're right. It must not be him. He must have come back in 21. Because you're right. That's not That's not 20 letters. You're no. right. You're right. So he's not there. So this Alta is not Cockers, a... though, did you look up what it means? No. Oh, okay. I looked it up when the episode came on, because I was like, what the fuck? They never say it. What does this mean? It's like a Yiddish thing that means like old, fuss budgety old people, you know? Like oh, these well, two guys. Oh, well, that's a perfect yeah. title. So it's a, You've yeah. been wanting to do this since the beginning. I feel like when we were pitching this podcast, you brought up this episode. Well, yes, because I'll tell you, this was one of the test episodes I did with my other, my original co-host. Mm. We did this as a test episode but I think she did the crime and I did the episode. So this time I did the crime and I was remembering all of it that she had told me. But um, yeah, so somewhere there's like an episode of me and Jackie Zabrowski talking about this uh, episode. But that's why I talked about it in pitching because I had like already gone through it and done it. Yeah, I remember you being obsessed with this. So I am happy that we finally got to do it. Well, also and... because the crime, the crime, the people this is based on is like kind of New York folklore and like people I had never heard of. So that's why I thought was interesting about it. Yeah, and it is a good episode. It opens on a close-up of some red lipstick lips. Um, and there's like a poetry erotic reading happening, I would say. We don't know exactly, like a book. I mean, it's going to be a book. But at first I was like, yeah. what is this sex show? This shop that they're in, do you recognize this? I'm I'm almost positive this is the Housing Works bookstore in like, uh, in like, Soho like Houston. Yeah, Soho. Because... Jared had a comedy show here forever, and this really has the vibes of it. So if you, I know, but I don't remember there that. being a balcony at the Housing Works one. There was an a part of it. Maybe I don't know. We got to find out where this was. I need to know. I'm gonna like Google it, but keep going. <laughs> um. So there's a microphone, and then it cuts to a wide shot, and it's a bookstore. Um. But it's lit like a nightclub, and there are strung Christmas lights. Um. All over, so you know these people are hip. We see the reader performers wearing an off-the-shoulder top with a collar around uh, their neck. And we hear, look, I hear Toyota. His tongue felt like a worm. And then as she continues, ominous music starts to play and it pans up to the balcony level. And then there's a spotlight. And so we, we just start seeing everyone. But there is a spotlight on like a man that's backlit by the light. And I don't think we're supposed to trust this man. This is like a very moody book reading. I feel like a book reading is usually just like someone sitting up at a table, like regular lights. And this is like sexual mood lighting. 
Oh, I was going to say the book that I brought with me for this trip. Um, I brought Arden Marine's book. Oh, straight yeah. out of Little Compton? Little Miss Little Compton. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good. I started it, um, but um, I'm like you. Reading is tough. Yeah, it's so tough. Yeah, it's a very moody reading. There's a man we shouldn't trust. And then they focus on a goatee mustache man who's very into the reading. Couples are kissing. They're rubbing on each other as they listen. And then uh, they zoom in on another man's face and then another man's. So it's like, okay, uh, it's enough. I don't need this parade. Uh, <laughs> But people are clapping, which is nice. And there's a blonde bob with bangs. So there's just like a lot of people. Everybody, everyone is shady. <laughs> That's what I wrote. Everyone is shady. And now the lights are fully on and it's a book signing time. And so the book is called Barracuda by Bobby O'Rourke. Blue and Barracuda, I think it's called, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Blue, Blue Barracuda, Barracuda which, which I only mo- mentioned because all the lighting is very blue and like, right. I feel like it's part of it. You're totally right. Um, so while there's so while Bobby is signing the books, there's a man behind her, probably like a PR editor or something like that. Um, but he does look like he would work at the Trump administration, and he's busy typing on his cell phone while listening to, you know, the people meeting Bobby. Everyone is now kissing Bobby's ass, like, "Oh my God, you're amazing to read. This is extraordinary. How did you do it? Oh my God, you've had such a hard life." And they ask Walker, the blonde, floppy hair man, like, "How did you find this person?" And he says that Bobby actually found him. So pretty wild. And then the woman goes, "says Color me green." Not sure what that means because jealousy is green is the color of jealousy. So it's call me jealous. So it's like color me green. Like I'm green. I'm green with envy, essentially. she wants to write a book. No, because she's another agent and is like, I wish a huge bestseller just fucking walked off the street into my life. That would be amazing. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Okay. So they talk business and then Bobby's over it and walks away as the Glitterati and Walter continue to talk about how amazing she is. And then she grabs a drink and sneaks off quick down the stairs to escape. And then it cuts to a shot of the city bad news, police lights, and someone saying, it's a nasty one, Sonny. And we are here with Carisi and Finn's voices on the scene. Um, and they're talking. So basically, book reading, signing, cocktails, and the writer comes out for a smoke, and then brick to the head, rinse, dry, repeat, and Benson's on the scene. And the men ask if she was raped, and she wasn't, so Carisi's like, then what the fuck are we doing here? And then Benson explains, well, she's not a she, physically, anyway. We might be looking at a hate crime. So that's which what's it's happening. funny that this episode was only from 2018 and like now saying that would not be it would not be cool for Benson to say that. Um a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But so. but then how would you say it if it's like the if it's a hate crime? You'd be like, oh, this is a trans woman. And yeah, this you'd is be a like, hate crime. well, she's at, she's trans, so this could be a hate crime. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they show her face laying on the cold cement with a pool of blood around her and straight to the credits. Yeah. So now we're back um, from the credits and straight into a walk and talk, but this is speedy. This is like an Olympic style pace of walking and talking. Carisi says we pulled prints from the brick, but they're not in any database. Uh, But Bobby is 16 years old. That's sad. Yeah. Um, they also keep saying Bobby is a he and he ran away from home. He gave a fake address. And then, yeah, I wrote like season 20, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Um, but Rollins is reading the book and Bobby's life was tough and they pull tricks to get by. So then Creasy says the word transgender and Rollins is like, actually, no, Bobby isn't. He just realized he made more money writing as a girl and decided to go with it. So maybe SVU is correct in all of this. I don't know how they knew it or sure. how even Rollins knows it, sure. but I guess And it's how does like, Rollins know that? 
Like, does he say no in the clue. book? I'm actually a boy. I just dressed up <laughs> like a girl. Like, no, because that would fuck it up. Maybe they talked to the yeah. blonde guy. I, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that's different. So that's just because, like, yeah, more like drag. Well, he's just across. Yeah, he's just cross dressing. Cross dressing. Yeah. Yes, that's what it was. <laughs> So Finn has something um, and he has the video from the bookstore after party. And he was like, well, if you're counting, Bobby had three drinks. And then this man on the tape is seen following Bobby out back. So check in with the bookstore, Liv says, and let's get this guy. So we're in the bookstore and the worker's looking at the picture and is saying this is a tragedy and that Bobby was going to be one of the greats. He's really distressed and he can't ID the guy though. There was a short guest list, but then it was first come, first serve. If you want info on that list, go talk to Bobby's publisher, the worker says. So our detectives had to pitch dark press. So Walter is chatting and explains their journey together. One day he got a manuscript and read it in one day, but there was no name or address on the story. And then he received a call a few days later. And this changed Walter's life forever. So Walter's saying like, Bobby has been through so much that even with the success of the book and everything that's happening and it got him off the streets, he still constantly drives by 12th Street just to make sure that Bobby is not turning any tricks and isn't like out there. And he's down to hand over the guest list, but he can't give Bobby's address away. And they're like, how did you send him checks? And it's like, Direct deposit. It is. <laughs> it's 2018. <laughs> uh, but the bank also doesn't have an address and he used the 92nd Street Y for that. So Benson is like, okay, let's get down to the basics. Why would anyone want to hurt Bobby? And Finn goes, well, maybe for the money Bobby has. Like, Bobby had half a million in his bank account. And Benson makes a face like, what? Um, and that money comes from uh, selling the rights to the book to Hollywood. And while the men and Benson discuss, Rollins rushes in with a laptop and she might have something. There's a video of the reading online and it's like a pan of the crowd and they see the guy and beside him is a bag of books and he uh, bought Absalom Absalom. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But I, I don't think that's important. That, but I don't know it. Yeah. What is important is that he bought it with a credit card. So we get this person's name and this guy's name is William Glover and he lives in Forest Hills and they're at his home on November 19th. He's wearing a vest and is a, like a suburb daddy and he's playing in front in the front yard with his two kids and he sees the detectives and he says, do we have to do this here? And he's not confused why they're there and then the wife comes out to like, wash up for dinner and the wife asks no question and is like, do your friends want to stay? I, I have extra lamb. <laughs> Also, I noticed the Volvo station wagon in the yeah. driveway. Hello. Um, so he kisses his wife super hard and says, I love you. And she's left in the yard. And he willingly, without any confusion, heads out with the detectives. So now we're in interrogation. The room looks extra giant. And it's Rollins, Benson, and the vest guy. And he says, what happens now? And Rollins is like, so you're not denying it? And he just like screams, I killed him. And it's like, why, bitch? Tell us why. And he says, you think I'm gay? And she says, I don't really care. And he says, well, I'm not. I have a wife and two kids. I saw a leaflet of her on the subway and she told me her name was Tammy three weeks ago. Picked her up for sex off 12th Street and then she had a little trouble unzipping my pants or hair, whatever. So he gives details of like their interaction. And so he bought sex from this person who said their name was Tammy. And then all of a sudden he's on the subway and he sees a leaflet, a leaflet for the book and it's like, what the fuck? I was lied to. But how did he know from the leaflet that she was a boy? Maybe because of the book. Maybe there was like, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he yeah. went randomly to the reading. 
I don't know. Or maybe he knew he was a boy the whole time. Maybe the yeah. name thing is what spiraled him. I mean, obviously, yeah. not. he like doesn't want to be gay. Um, so I wrote, I hope you rot in jail for life, you animal. I'm done with him. Um, but it blacks out on the screen and then we open back up on a super close-up shot of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> But also, wow, that was a confession. Like, what's going to happen next? You know, we're only a few minutes in. So it's like a red herring, but they did it. So I don't even know what that's called. I'm a misdirect. So anyways, Carisi is standing over the donuts and Benson's coming towards him like, just pick one. And he says, what's the point? And she's like, maybe you're hungry. What do you want from me, (laughs) fucking weirdo? And they turn uh, the convo to the case. The vest guy is with Stone right now. And and he's probably going to plead to man one without the hate crime charge. And Carisi's confused. Like, Bobby had so much money from the book. Why would he go back to the streets? And she says that he's been doing it a long time and doesn't know how to stop. But Carisi isn't buying it. Like, what if someone was forcing him to do it? Hello, I don't, I didn't trust Walter. Do you remember that? So what if Walter is bad news bears? So Creasy's like, if Walter is driving down 12th Street, constantly making sure that Bobby isn't there, but this killer nut job was able to find Bobby, bam, so easy like that. Like, this is shady. So now they head to Walter and Walter's like, you found the guy, that's great. Um, And he seems really happy that the killer is caught. And he's down to testify. And Creasy's like, slow down. We actually have to clarify one thing. You told me you drove up and down 12th Ave looking for Bobby. The thing is this, guy who killed him found him hooking a few times in the past few weeks. So what's up? Um, So Walter flips super fast. He's like, okay, I lied. I've never met Bobby. And they're like, okay, so who was doing the reading? And he goes, well, Teddy, aka Tammy or whatever the hell he was calling himself that week. So Carisi keeps at it. And this whole thing is a scam. Walter says, no, 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 no. Bobby is real, but the secrecy thing was his idea. And it worked great until we sold the rights to Hollywood and they wanted to see a face. And so Carisi says, you created one. And Walter says, yeah, I found Tammy on the streets and bought a forged license. All he had to do was read a few pages and I paid him $500. I didn't think anyone would get hurt. He asks if he is under arrest and Creasy is like, I'll keep you posted. So we're at the vending machines and Creasy's telling Benson, if it wasn't for this guy's scam, this person wouldn't be dead. And Benson's like, okay, but you convinced Stone to take this on. Like, dude, come on. You want to charge someone for luring people into a free book reading? Benson doesn't like it either, but unless we change the law, there's nothing they can do. So Finn is sitting reading the book at his desk and says, this book is filled with underage sex rape-like vibes. So what? maybe we can charge people with statutory rape. And Benson's like, I doubt he used real names. And Finn is like, but what if we can find these men? Like, what if we can find these people in the book that we're reading about? So Carisi says there is zero chance this person's going to show their face now. But Finn actually was proactive wildly. Can't believe it. Um, And Bobby made a couple of online banking moves and he sent that to Taru and they tracked the IP address. So we pull up to a giant ass witch's castle. Like, you know, those... (laughs) like tower cylinders with like the cone yeah. things on top. It's very haunted mansion vibes. And I, I'm like, how is this someone's home? I, I'm shocked. And Finn goes, well, maybe they rent a room. So they walk towards the haunted home, knock, knock, NYPD. And a woman on the street with a stroller says, what did they do? She says, these people are never seen. Like they don't come to anything. Um, She says the lights go up at night, off in the day, delivery guys leave the stuff, but I've never seen anyone take anything in. And she says, but it's New York and I feel like people are allowed to be weird. Okay, cool, mom. I figure it's New York. People are allowed to be weird. (sighs) I love that. 
So then Finn makes the call and says, we're going to need a team and a warrant. So they jimmy the lock and a whole team enters this castle and it's dusty vampire vibes. And they start yelling, Bobby, Bobby O'Rourke. And they think whoever lives here might be keeping Bobby prisoner. So they're looking around this whole dark ass house with flashlights and there's moving, like they're they're moving around. There's a lot of sliding doors and the set designer deserves an Emmy. I'll say that. This is intense, intense set design. And Carisi is coughing and covering his face with the smell and Carisi finds dried blood in a corner. So then they hear a creak and it's Judd Hirsch and he has a Yiddish accent to the max. He's in a Hugh Hefner style robe and he's like, what the hell? This is my house. I don't like this. And he then explains that Bobby O'Rourke is a bartender who died 50 years ago. He's like, I went to the damn funeral. And another man exits a room and it's Wallace Shawn, aka Clueless. And and so (laughs) many other stuff. But what's the Princess Bride? Princess Bride is huge, yeah. But he's in so much. Yeah, he's working. Jenja, these are both kind of legends, you know? Yeah. These are both uh, legendary totally. guys in our business. So then Wallace Shawn is like, what the hell did you do this time? He did it. Arrest his sorry ass. And Bobby died in 75, not 72. And then they start fighting and they are brothers. <laughs> and they refuse to be in the same car with him. Like, so they're like, you can take us, but I'm not sharing a fucking car with this guy. He voted for Gerald Ford. I'm not going to ride with him. You ride with him. I'm not going. Going. And so they're like, it's like a vaudeville act. Um, <laughs> these guys are loony tunes. Uh, so Judd is with Rollins and Benson. He doesn't know about this writer. And they're like, we trace the IP to you. And he doesn't even know what IP is. Wallace Shawn is in with Finn. Like, wait, the computers can tell you where they are? Very Jumanji. And <laughs> Finn is like, honey, I hear you. <laughs> He then uses a bad word, but adds a Jewish flair to it. So I don't, I'm not going to say it, but you know, not a fun word, but it does sound fun in Yiddish. (laughs) So then he's like, don't, you know, Finn's like, hey, don't say that. And he goes, what? It's a word. Who cares? And Finn says, well, it hurts people. And then these men are so annoying. This is, I think, the reason I hate this episode. So he calls his brother a son of a bitch. Okay, I'm back on board. Um, And then he calls him a schmuck. Love that. Then the other brother is like, he's a bum. He would hurt him. What do you think he did to Sharice? And they're like, who is Sharice? And then there's a bad word for black people with some Jewish flair, um, some Yiddish. And everyone's like, you can't say that. (laughs) And he's like, ah, you guys are so annoying. So the parents owned the house and their dad died in 69 and the mom in 73. And they were good parents. And then so then Judd hasn't actually even left the house since then. And Finn's like, well, what about you? And the guy, Wallace Shawn, is like, what? I'm supposed to leave it all to himself? <laughs> what is it? The mutually exclusive? What's that thing from Yellow Jackets? Mutually assured destruction? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's this, where it's like their lives are a mess, but they'd rather both be a mess than one of them get to be in this gorgeous house. Right. And by, <laughs> it's also a hoarding house. Um, I don't know if I was clear about that. I mean, I said vampires and dust, but it's... No, stacks and stacks of shit, like major hoarding vibes, yeah. Major. So we're back to Judd and Sharice came in twice a week and made terrible soup, but Wallace thought she was stealing because he would put quarters all over the house and then when there was one missing, he was like, she's stealing. So they fired her in 1975. And Wallace is like, if anything happened to this boy, it was Joe. So I'm sure this this wild back and forth, is it's lasting forever. Yeah, yeah. We go to Carisi. 
a while. Um, and so we go back to Carisi, who's a uh, flashlight deep in searching the house. And uh, there's little, little peaks of sunlight and really pretty stained glass, but mostly a mess. And then, fuck, man down, man down, a giant bookshelf with tons of books falls on Carisi. And he's like, get this thing off of me. And what if he was alone? Like, that is yeah. so fucking scary. And yeah. it was a booby trap. So something's back there. So he stepped on something. The shelf fell on him. And holy shit, what's back there being protected by this booby trap is a laptop with a copy of Bobby's book. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. And so then the next book is actually a document on the computer. So we know for a fact that Bobby was there and was writing. We have, like, a sequel being written as it's happening. So oh, also I want to say that the guy who helps take the bookshelf off of... Uh, Carisi is Montero, who is Eddie Hargitay, who is Marishka's brother, who's been re recurring on a couple of episodes. Oh, wow. He's always just this officer named Montero that they all know, and, like, he's always in, like, one scene or whatever. Um, so Benson's at the precinct on the cell phone getting scoop, and Carisi's calling from outside of the house saying that the document was updated two days ago. So they're like, keep searching. Bobby might be hiding in there. So there's five floors in this house. It's huge. Now we're back to Wallace Shawn, who lets Finn know that he wants a corned beef sandwich from Carnegie Deli. <laughs> and then Finn is like, that place closed two years ago, which is news to me, and now I'm sad. <laughs> I loved that place, because, like, you would order one thing, and they would give you a pickles, a piece of challah, a dip, a this. Like, they, it's just, they would give you so many foods for one omelet. yeah. Um, and Wallace Shawn is so funny and says, nobody told me about the Shiva. And our lady <laughs> walks in and says, you're coming with me. And he says, oh, nice. We're going home. And they're like, not quite, dude. Let's go. So they're putting the brothers together and it's Judd and Wallace uh, with Benson and Rollins. And they're like, we know Bobby was in your house two days ago. Nobody has seen him since. And Judd says, I haven't. And Wallace is like, liar. And then they start arguing and Judd says, well, tell them. Tell them about Izzy Berkowitz. And Benson's like, who, what, what is happening? So I guess this Izzy guy cheated on in, in a game on Jim Rubby in 1958. So it's like, why are we still talking about it? And he's like, it shows your character and you have none. And Wallace gets up and says, I'm not listening to this anymore. And Benson's like, yes, you are, bitch. <laughs> um, you're going to sit here until you and your brother tell us what happened to Bobby O'Rourke. You understand that? And they both sit down silent and they finally realize that they're in trouble. Maybe? Carisi is still searching. Why aren't they wearing hazmats? This is like so dangerous. Yeah. So then Carisi finds, uh-oh, a deep freezer with a lock. Not a good sign. Never a good sign. And it was covered in blankets and Finn, knock, knock, comes in and they get lab results back. And the DNA on the manuscript matches blood on floors and the laptop. So we're going to search your house from top to bottom and we're going to find him. And then Benson goes, and that's it. You're both under arrest and put them in the cage. So that gets them rattling. And finally, Wallace says, well, wait, it was me. And Benson goes, you killed Bobby. And Wallace says, no, there is no Bobby. Okay, give them a lawyer if they want one. I'm done. And Wallace stops them again and says, look, I wrote it. His brother's like, whoa, you wrote a book? <laughs> and Wallace angrily tells his brother, well, I had to do something. Who do you think pays for the groceries and the real estate taxes? And Judd goes, well, what about mama's money? And Wallace is like, that's going to run out in six months, but you never think about the future. You never do. I always have to think about the future. And she says, wait a minute. If you haven't left the house since 1973, how is it that you got a computer to write on? Good detective work. <laughs> Uh, Judd again confuses, like, whoa, you have a computer? <laughs> I love this. 
And Wallace is pissed. No, I used hieroglyphics. Benson <laughs> says, focus. So Wallace explains that he gave Carlos, the boy that delivers from the deli, $100 to buy it and set it up for him. So then tell us about the blood. He says he cut himself when trying to carry his mother's sewing machine into the basement and stepped on a piece of broken glass. Why do you think Bobby never showed his face? The truth is, we didn't kill Bobby O'Rourke. You people did. Back to Carisi, Jimmy, the freezer lock. It breaks open and inside is frozen food and a body. Yikes. Done, done. So... In the freezer, there's a dead woman with gray long hair, and it's an older lady, and she is dead in that freezer. And now we're back from a commercial break. That's obviously the done. That's that's an act break. Um, have you seen Bernie that movie? Uh, Jack Black. Yes, pieces of it. Yes, I don't know I if I've watched the whole thing, but yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, the townspeople are real townspeople from yes, that town. Yes, we, we've talked about this pod, on this podcast I can't a bunch, stop. Because you love this movie, yeah. <laughs> I do love it. So we're back from the commercial break, and Benson is wearing thick black-rimmed glasses and reading the book with a pen in her hand to make some notes in the margins. And Rollins walks in with a file in hand from the Emmy, and the dead body is Rose Edelman, tumors in both lungs, and she didn't die from cancer but from asphyxiation. There's no bruise marks, though, around her neck, so they must have used a pillow to suffocate her. Uh, and this is the mother, obviously. So Benson is like, you read it? And Rollins is like, yeah. So she starts reading out loud, and... It, um, and the text from the book reads, like, like, do I hate this guy or love him? And does he love or hate me? But he wants me enough to let go of his hard-earned money. And it's in such details. And Benson is like, I've spoken to so many survivors that speak like this. And Rollins, being dense as fuck, is like, sure, but this is coming from a 73-year-old hoarder. And Benson responds, who has completely rejected society. Uh, so Rollins, ding, 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 was he abused? And Benson's like, yeah, and if he was, he deserves some closure. So they go to Rikers on November 26th. Now, I do need to mention. So November 19th, they're starting this investigation. It's the 26th. Thanksgiving happened. <laughs> we didn't even get to see the squad get together at Liv's apartment and split a turkey leg. Fuck. Maybe it's like a late in Tuesday, but I think um, that, that goes away because court's on the 30th or 31st. So it's like truly just... Rolled through Thanksgiving. Past Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> so they work on it. So anyways, Wallace is in an orange jumpsuit and he's telling a white blazered Benson childhood stories about being on the beach with his mom and his mom loved reading books and he's talking about the waves and the undertow. And so sadly, these boys were like pushed so far from the shore and then um, like whatever, they were trying to be saved and they were like getting carried under. And then the lifeguard saved him. And then he remembers being face down on the shore, regurgitating salt water with every cough. And Benson's like, well, you certainly owe your life to that lifeguard. And he goes, nope, I owe mama. Like she made the lifeguard go get them. And she kept us afloat because she got there beforehand. Like she beat him out to us. So it's really like the mom that say, like, helped save them from this undertow situation. And I'm not really sure why they're telling this story. But Benson says she sounds like an amazing woman. And Wallace makes a face that reminds me of Jeff Ross. He truly looks like Jeff Ross for a second. <laughs> I think that you're hearing this whole story so that it sets up that these guys didn't like viciously kill their mom. They were like obsessed with her, you know? 
Yeah, that's that's a great idea. And yeah. so he winces, but uh, but smiles and is hiding something, but then agrees and says, the eggs always think they're smarter than the chicken. And I'm not about to confess something that I didn't do. And Benson goes, okay, then what about something your brother did? And he's like, he ain't gonna say shit. Sorry, dude. So Rollins is pregnant in this scene. So of course, no one will leave her alone ever. Like, yeah. And they're just like, so where's your husband? So Judd's asking about the husband and it's like, leave her alone, Let her just be pregnant. She's a slut, okay? No, but there is someone special. And he says, well, until he marries you, I don't want to hear about him. So they giggle and they're honestly like being cute. So I was pissed at first because I think everyone should just leave her alone. <laughs> um, for some reason, boundaries go out the door when someone's pregnant. I'm sure people were saying insane things to you. Yeah, people are wild. They say whatever they want. They touch you. Yeah, are you going to give vaginal birth? And it's yeah, like, what are you yeah, talking yeah. about? Yeah. We're like, it's people are crazy, but he's just being sweet, like a sweet Jew man, I feel like, being like, oh, well, if he doesn't marry you, I hate him. <laughs> so she asks if he wants a wife, and he says no, that he's too busy. So this is a little trickster Rollins here. She says, she starts flirting. She's like, but you're too handsome. You would have been quite a catch. And he says, so are you shacking up like those flower people? And she laughs and she says, they're, they've been gone for a long time and they're flower children. He then asks if his brother has confessed yet. He's weak, that kid. She asks if he needed to protect him and he responds, damn straight. But he then says, it sometimes it is really hard to be the big brother because, you know, you feel all this responsibility to protect protect your little brother. And it cuts back to Benson and Wallace. And she says she wants to talk about the book and that it was powerful. And he gets excited. He's like, you read it? And she says it was so real that actually she doesn't get how he could have written it without. And before she can finish, she says, I don't want to talk about that and gets up from his chair to stare at a wall. She says, I know how hard it must have been. And he says, you, you know, bump kiss. She says, no, anyone that could have written that book certainly must have lived through something. You wrote that so you can tell the world what happened and how devastating it was. And he says, no, I wrote that book for money. And she says, you were ashamed and that's why you didn't use your name. She says, shame isn't on you and it wasn't your fault. Who did this to you? Who hurt you? And then it cuts back to Judd and Rollins. And after, now you know, they do these back and forths. Yeah. So after school, uh, we used to go to this play center and there was a counselor there and he was 20. And Rollins asks if he did anything to his brother. And he says, fuck no. What kind of brother would I be if I allowed that? And she says, but he hurt you. And he yells, I was only 12 years old, damn it. What kind of a person? He says that there was a guy called Vincent and he was always around. And first time was in the locker room when nobody else was there. And he said, this is what big boys do. And it starts to cut back and forth fast between the two brothers talking about what happened. And Judd says, just don't tell my brother. And then Wallace had never told anybody and especially not his brother who would have laughed at him. Then Judd says, I was the older brother. How could I have told him? And Ron's like, what about your father? And Judd says, oh, oh no, like our father would get mad if I didn't ace the test. Like, how could I tell him about this? And Benson asks, like, what about your mother? And Wallace says, of course not. She would have thought I was dirty and I would have, and wouldn't have loved me anymore. Did they Benson get molested by separate guys? No. Oh, it was the same guy? I thought he yeah. gave a different name. No, I think it's the okay. same guy. I mean, Sorry. we'll see, but I think it's the same Go guy. On. Yeah. So Benson and Stone do a walk and talk in front of stained glass um, that says justice behind them. <laughs> and she says, Peter, they were both abused. And he says, okay, and conveniently they didn't say anything about it till they were charged. She says, I believe them. And he's like, well, I'll do my best to get it excluded from the trial, he says proudly. Fucking loser. Um, <laughs> 
to be that hot and so wildly hated, like it's a special <laughs> level of bad personality and choices with this character. And ben, like we even like Amaro, like we still think Amaro's hot and he's shot unarmed children. And then with Stone, it's just like, get away from us. <laughs> Benson is like, you won't have to fucking do that. They both won't ever admit it. And so like, you don't have to like work to exclude it. They're pretty ashamed of what happened. They won't even admit it to each other. And he's like, great, then that's settled. Perfect. And she's begging for him to cut them a deal. And it's like the mom was sick and in pain, just please. And he's like, listen, I already made a deal with the attorney, okay? One year jail, 10 years probation. And that takes Olivia by surprise. She's like, well, that's generous. And he goes, yeah, they turned it down. She says they're sympathetic defendants. And he's like, yeah, until the jury hears they kept their mom on ice in the basement. So now we're in court and it's the 29th and a Thursday. So Thanksgiving was definitely last week. I told you during the case. <laughs> um, no one even said like, oh, fuck, are you going somewhere? Like, yeah, yeah. No one even brings in leftovers. Yeah. Um, nobody complained about working. Um, so we got defense attorney Evan Braun. He's in eight episodes of SCU and he's played by Michael Kostroff and classic evil guy face. You know, it must be sad. So like, this is an actor my mom would be like, I don't like him. He's bad. You know, <laughs> she doesn't like Christopher Walken. Like anyone that ever plays anyone bad yeah. to her, it's like, get them away. <laughs> oh, not Christopher Walken. I don't know. I was thinking Willem Dafoe. Do they look similar? No, they don't, but Willem, they're both creepy looking, kind of. You don't think they look similar at all? Christopher Walken and Willem Dafoe, I don't. Okay, no. well, we'll do a poll. We'll do a poll. <laughs> we'll Remember, do a poll. Casey, will you do a note so we post this? <laughs> We're going to do a poll. So he's addressing the jury in a beautiful shot of television, I would say. He says, this is a case about love, about two sons who just love their mom too much. And since I love the way that this was shot, I looked up the director and he's done 34 episodes of SVU and every other Dick Wolf show. So he's really been working and incredible and I didn't even write his name down. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Um, he says it always struck him as odd that the law says that a mother must take care of their kids. So you would think there would be a law that says kids should take care of her when she is old and sick. And he says Rose got very sick and was only had six months to live. And then she died. And Mr. Stone will say that they that these two loving sons murdered her. But their two sons who cooked for her, bathed her, and made sure she took her meds, two boys that loved their mom so much that when she passed away, they couldn't bear to see her buried in Queens in dirt. Um, and then and then he goes, an entree for hungry worms. Like, he's laying it on thick. This yeah. is a real performance. And Judd puts his head in his hands. And then our dude says, or worse yet, shoved into a flaming hot oven. And I feel like there's Holocaust undertones <laughs> here. Because I want to be cremated, and I don't think that's, like, a mean thing to do to a body. <laughs> I definitely think this is Holocaust vibes. And it's a crazy thing to do to a body. I want, that's what I want to happen to me. I don't want to like rot for years in the ground. Sorry, that's not for me. No, that's totally fine. But you can't say that burning a body is like chill. It's all, it's just like what we've accepted. But did you watch Midsummer? No. I feel like you did it. I had Jared explain it to me. Ruined style. So yeah, like in Midsummer, they make the old guys like jump off a cliff to their deaths. And like, we think that's fucked, right? Like I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't like watching that. So I feel if a different society that didn't burn their dead loved ones would also be like, this is fucked. Why? What do you think is the thing to do with dead people? I don't know. Throw me at sea. I want to go to the bottom of the ocean. <sighs> Jesus. It's like, you know, it's hard to make a body sink. They're going to have to really weigh you down. 
It's a lot of work. Well, no, because wouldn't, oh yeah, because I'm not breathing. Yeah. So that's that's the why all these bodies the float back up. That's why Dexter always chopped them up into like bags and like weighed them down and then they all got found in the end anyway. But they do burials at sea, no? I mean, Viking burials was like you put them out at sea and then you set them on fire. So it's combining oh two, two of these things. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my god. Okay. So whatever. There's a Holocaust undertone, and yeah. then, and then he's like, and then put it in a little jar. And at this point, Judd is like putting his fist in his mouth, like he is not happy. <laughs> and Joe and Ben loved their mother so much; they kept her as she was and where she wanted to be in her home. And if you ask me, that's love. And the jury's thinking, they're taking it in. And he smiles. He knows he did a very good job in his opening statements. So the judge asks Stone to bring up the first witness and judge stands up and says, that's enough. And the judge tries to get him to stop and sit down. He's like, no, judge, no, that's enough. And then Wallace looks confused and he says, I did it. I killed my mother. I did it. Ben had nothing to do with it. I did. And I'm so sorry, mama. And he collapses into Wallace and he's full collapse. He is now in the hospital with a tube in his nose. And we hear Wallace yell, you you stupid son of a bitch. Always the martyr. Look what you did, you schmuck. Um, Stone is behind this very private, intense moment listening in to these, like, brothers. I'm like, can you just <laughs> give him some space? Yeah. Uh, Benson walks up to Stone, and Stone fills her in that Judd Hirsch did have a massive coronary. Um, and again, there's very sexy blue light on them. So this is like a nightclub hospital. Uh, that was wild blue lighting, yeah, for a hospital. that I noticed that. I was like, what's happening? Um, Wallace just keeps crying and saying stupid, 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 always hogging the stage. And now he's like full crying and he realizes he's really gonna like his brother's in trouble. So Benson says, your brother is still protecting you. And he says back, well, what do I have to protect? Nothing. The heart machine goes nuts. Doctors run in and, you know, everyone needs to get out. And Wallace keeps crying. Um, what's happening? No, what's happening? What's going on? And Benson walks um, him out as they try to help Judd and put oxygen on him. And the doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry. And he asks if he can see him and the doctor, of course, says yes. So Stone says he's going to go officially drop the charges against Wallace and walks off. Wallace is sitting over his brother's dead body. His name was Vincent, he says at the center. I know I should have told you, but I didn't have the strength, but I remember it as if it was today. His spotted hands jerking forward and landing on top of my head. Retreat or resistance was futile. So I just reminded myself to breathe in and out. And Benson's in the doorway listening to the family's most sensitive moment and she's so sad they're all sad and under the neon blue nightclub light it pans out slowly and that's dick wolf baby yeah a real nightclub situation going on at that hospital i mean yeah this episode is wild it's like sad and weird and like it's also kind of weird that like wallace sean's character like when they first brought you guys in why didn't you just say hey what's up there's no bobby i'm bobby you were trying to pin the murder of an invisible person on your brother i don't think you hate your brother that much like it was so weird but um this is based on like three different real life things so let's go to our little messages and we'll be right back <laughs> Let's 
listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, we're back. So there's three little sections of the crime portion of this. I'll try to get through everything. Um, So obviously, Bobby's murder could be based on any number of murders of like innocent trans women. There is an epidemic of violence against trans people. And um, it does seem though, like that this timing wise is based off the murder of Angie Zapata, who was a trans woman killed in 2008 in Colorado. Not based on timing, sorry, because it was 10 years earlier, but just based on... um, I'll get into it. So Angie was 18 when she met Alan Andrade or Andrade, uh, who was 31 on the internet. They spent three days together, engaged in some sexual activity, and then he realized that she was trans and he beat her to death and drove off in her car at her own, this was at her own home. Uh, It was very clearly a hate crime. His lawyer tried to use this like victim blaming strategy to excuse his behavior, like because, you know, she kept it secret that she was trans and then he reacted, but he admitted to the crime, Andrade, admitted to the crime and referred to Angie several times as it in interviews. And he was thankfully convicted of first-degree murder, hate crimes, aggravated motor motor vehicle theft, and identity theft, and got life in prison without the possibility of parole. So luckily, he is a monster and he is in jail forever. Um, But this was a landmark case because it was the first one in the U.S. to get a conviction for a hate crime involving a transgender victim. So I feel like when they were talking about this guy killing Bobby, they were talking about how... Oh, he'll get, they'll get a man one without, and they'll drop the hate crime because it seemed like maybe it's hard to convict for a hate crime. But this was like the landmark case where it first happened. So that added like 60 years to his sentence that it was a hate crime as well. So it is important. Um, So uh, that's- And I wish dudes were just able to be like, oh, I guess I'm attracted to trans women and then live their lives. It's like so fucking annoying. Yeah. Worse than annoying. No, it's horrific. Like, this guy, like, beat her, like, with a fire extinguisher. Like, it was a really horrific way to die. And it's just, um, I, there's some resources that are in our show notes about about Angie that you can um, check out as well. Um, and the whole idea of the Bobby character being an actor paid to portray an author is based on the J.T. Leroy literary hoax. Now, I had never heard of this. Jeremiah Terminator Leroy was known as J.T. Leroy, 
was a per like a person who published a bunch of these books that were very similar to Blue Barracuda about life on the street, the semi-autobiographical book about um, a teen boy, his life of drugs, poverty, sexual abuse, et cetera. Uh, and it was Jeremiah Terminator Leroy, known as J.T. Leroy. But it turned out that J.T. Leroy was a persona created by another writer named Laura Albert in the 90s, okay? Um, Leroy, quote-unquote, wrote three fictional books, and they were obviously written by Laura, but then she pretended to be JT over the phone and an email with people. So after the first book came out, I believe it was called Sarah. It was optioned for movie stuff. Then people wanted to see who is JT Leroy. They needed a face, right? So she got her sister-in-law, her husband's sister, Savannah Noop, started to appear in public as the writer JT Leroy wearing sunglasses and a wig. And I'll tell you what, People loved J.T. Leroy. He was credited in liner notes and biographies for musicians like Billy Corgan, Liz Fair, Brian Adams, Marilyn Manson, Nancy Sinatra, Courtney Love, and more. He corresponded with Madonna over email. He ca called Carrie Fisher a, fr a personal friend. And like I said, he had a movie deal in place and Gus Van Sant was supposed to direct it, the movie of the book, Sarah. I read the Marilyn Manson book. Oh, yeah? That's interesting of all the books. Um, well, I, you know, rocker and sports things are usually interesting, but it was fucked. He, like, talked about his grandfather having crusty dildos, and, like, I just remember in the book there was photos of girls at his concerts that, like, cut Marilyn Manson's name with blood Ew. in their chests and stuff. Oh, no. So I think I was at the— Like, I, I remember reading the Red Hot— the Anthony Kiedis book. I think I just liked reading about— Memoirs. Drugs. Yeah. No, like drugs, bad stuff, sex, right? Yeah. Did you read Go Ask Alice? Yes. You know that's not real. Yes. Okay, yeah. Just I don't know. I just found that out with like this article that came out about how that was like a Mormon like propaganda or something. Yeah, but we should have known because it was too intense. Like it was like, this is not real. I mean, we do know intense things happen to people, but yeah. That book I, was like the the secret book to read in school. Like check yeah. it out. But like it was like so scandalous to read it. I remember that. So... In 2005, finally, JT was exposed uh, as being Laura. A couple of reporters, like, basically wrote big stories about it and were like, this is not, this person doesn't exist. It's this woman. And she later said uh, that she used the, the persona of JT as, quote-unquote, a veil to protect herself and uh, her uh, from her own past about, like, involving sex work and violence. And she said it was like a survival mechanism. And she did tell Interview Magazine... Quote, you know, J.T. Leroy does not exist, but he lives. That's what a famous film historian once said about Bugs Bunny, end quote. So I don't know what's going on. Um, but she did lose the movie deal because they said it was fraudulent. So the movie never got made. And in 2008, Savannah Noop, which I'm obsessed with this last name. It's K-N-O-O-P, Noop. Uh, Savannah Noop published a memoir called Girl Boy Girl, How I Became J.T. Leroy, about the six years she spent impersonating J.T. Leroy. And then um, there was a movie called J.T. Leroy where Laura Dern played Laura Albert and Kristen Stewart played Savannah. And it came out in 2019 and I guess nobody really cared. I've never heard of it. And those are two pretty big stars for 2019. Maybe it, I don't know what happened, but it came out 
and it got like 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it didn't totally bomb, but it didn't do well either. Like it's so strange. I saw like a whole cover of it. Maybe I'd be interested in watching it now. But it was like a big thing in the literary world. Some people thought it was cool that she like hacked the literary like system of like the literary world and all the literati bullshit. And then other people were like, it was a hoax. Do you remember that guy who went on Oprah and lied? Like a million yes, little pieces. A million little pieces. That. Yeah. That was huge too. Another literary hoax. So now the Edelman brothers are based on a very famous set of brothers. I did not know about these people, but they're called the Collier brothers. Uh, their names were Homer and Langley, two very eccentric brothers who lived together basically as hermits in Harlem and were like OG hoarders, like just like this episode. Their brownstone was at 2078 Fifth Avenue, which is at Fifth Avenue and 128th Street, and was filled with like books, furniture, musical instruments. They found 14 pianos when they finally went in there. Like just tons and tons of crap, just like what they show in the episode. They also set up booby traps like, I assumed in the episode that Carisi just kind of, like, fell against a bookshelf or something just fell over on him. But these are actually booby traps that these guys set to stop anyone who broke in, intruders, invaders, anything like that. So it's it's a wild, a wild uh, story, these, these two guys. So to give a little bit of their background, their parents were first cousins. Yikes. Not, not Never going to be great. Um, and then after their mother's death, it seems like they really loved their mother the same way that these guys do, the brothers inherited the brownstone and they lived in it together. They had a pretty normal life. They both taught Sunday school. Homer was a lawyer and Langley was a piano dealer because he actually used to be a concert pianist and even played at Carnegie Hall. But then another guy named um, Paderewski, his name is Ignacy Jan Paderewski, who was a huge Polish piano player and later became the prime minister of Poland. Apparently, he was getting better reviews than uh, Langley at Carnegie Hall. So Langley just quit playing piano. He was like, well, he's better than me, so what's the point? So these guys are eccentric. Um, but they still went out at this point. They had started to slightly withdraw due to the changing demographics of the neighborhood, i.e. black people moving in. The Harlem started to become like a black community. And so these guys were low-key racists, high-key racists. Uh, they just started to not go out as much and withdraw a little bit from community life. And then... Homer had some kind of health event. I would read in some places that it was a stroke, other that it was like a hemorrhage, but he lost his eyesight. And Langley then quit his job to take care of his brother full-time and their shut-in lifestyle truly began. And then they became sort of like NYC folklore. And so people would hear about these eccentric brothers and they would come and gawk at them. Like people would stand around the house and try to get a look. And that made the brothers become even more paranoid. Like kids would throw rocks through their windows. So then they'd board up their windows. People tried to rob them. So then they set up all these booby traps. So it's like everything that people did also pushed them further and further into this like seclusion um, that they were in. So Lang, I, you don't get the feeling that it was like the same um, cattiness as these two brothers, that they were fighting each other all the time. Like Langley was apparently very protective of Homer and would never let anyone see or speak to him. Like they would never take Homer to a doctor. They did not trust doctors, even though their father was a gynecologist. They said they knew too much about medicine to trust doctors. So never went to a doctor. And Langley thought he could cure Homer with diet and rest. So he would feed Homer a diet of 100 oranges a week, black bread, which I Googled, and I think it's just rye bread, and then but peanut butter. And he swore that this diet was the cure. But big shock, 
it was not. Homer got sicker. He eventually became paralyzed by rheumatism. So now the New York Times publishes an article that erroneously claims that they had turned down an offer for $125,000 for the brownstone, which at the, if you were to think about it in today's money, would be over a million dollars. And um, they were, that just wasn't true. This article also implied that the brothers had some kind of secret fortune, which was also false. And this helped add to like people gawking and showing up at their house was this New York Times article. Eventually, in 1937, their phone was disconnected. And in 1938, their electricity and water was cut off. So they heated their house with a kerosene heater. Langley would go get their water from a pump in a nearby park. And since he was an engineer, Langley jerry-rigged a Model T Ford to be their generator for electricity. So these guys are like running a car inside their house to make electricity. Like, it's truly is wild. Pre, is, isn't that bad? Like, exhaust fumes indoors? Sure. Yeah, of course. I'm sure it was, like, horrible. Especially because, like, exhaust fumes with on a Model T Ford are probably worse than they are now where there's, like, you know, different filters and shit. But they lived like this for almost a decade. Like, they lived like this throughout the end of the 30s, halfway into the 40s. And then in 1947, the police get an anonymous call that there's a dead body in the house. They said they could smell something decomposing. So the police sent someone over. They Police could not even get into the house because there was so much shit, you know? So after five hours of like digging through all this stuff, they do find Homer's body surrounded by boxes of stuff, stacks of newspaper, all everything's reaches up to the ceiling. Like it's wild. And he has been dead for 10 hours. So that's weird because like that wouldn't be, that wouldn't have a smell yet, okay? No, weird. His cause of death was starvation and heart disease. So now a lot of people assumed that Langley had like called in the tip and then bu- um, like busted ass out of town. But people got suspicious when he didn't show up to his brother's funeral because like they were super close and he would have showed up. So then they go back into the house on April 8th. This is like two weeks later and they find Langley's body 10 feet away from where they found Homer. He was in a tunnel that he had built. It was one of the booby traps and it was surrounded with rusty bed springs inside the tunnel but he had somehow set off the booby trap and he'd been crushed. So he died actually on March 9th. They didn't find his body for a month. And in, and so he died. His cause of death was asphyxiation and his brother couldn't survive without him. He was the one that brought him food and did everything for him. So 11 days after his brother died, um, Homer died. And uh, then, so it was actually Langley's body that was the smell and had it had like been getting eaten by rats and stuff. It was like really gross, but- so sad. Like, and I wonder if Homer just died thinking that his brother abandoned him or like what he, like what happened, you know, but these two sad agoraphobic racists were just trapped in their house and surrounded by all their crap. So anyway, a year after they were found, the house was demolished and the property is now a pocket park, which is named after the brothers. In 2002, the Harlem Fifth Avenue Block Association wanted to change the, the name of the park because they're like, what did the Collier brothers ever do for Harlem? And Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe said, quote, sometimes history is written by accident. So there are some historic names that are not necessarily celebrated. Not all history is pretty. And many New York children were admonished by their parents to clean their room, quote, or else you'll end up like the Collier brothers, end quote. So I guess they're always going to be a huge part of New York City lore. And then 
Side note, I did look up like hoarding. I really wanted to know like what's the cause of hoarding. Like they actually have not determined a cause of hoarding and it wasn't actually until 2013 that compulsive hoarding was even defined as a mental disorder. And um, psychologists apparently still cannot decide whether it is a manifestation of another commission, uh, condition like OCD or another disorder that would have, you know, hoarding as a, a side symptom or if it's its own disorder. But it is estimated that two to 5% of adults suffer from hoarding. So. Wait, so when the brother didn't show up to the funeral, it's because he was dead in the house. Yes. Got it. They thought yeah. he had just, but they, he was 10 feet away from where they found the other body, but they just couldn't see him because there's so much crap in the house. So when they finally got them out of the house, I should mention, they removed 140 tons of stuff. So that's 280,000 pounds. Is that right? That's yeah. I don't know about math. When in they my head, the I house. was just imagining how many elephants it would be. <laughs> when I hear so tons, many, I just when think I hear tons, elephant. I think of elephants. So do I actually. But um, yeah, they so they didn't really commit crimes. No, but these guys are based on them. But they, yeah. I think they wanted to do something about these guys, and then they did the dead mom thing because these guys did love their mom, and it does seem like after their mother died is when they sort of descended more into madness. Yeah. But then I think they they needed to have there be some kind of hook to get these guys, you know. And their names are so old-timey. This is such a interesting, wild, yeah. old-timey thing. Homer and Langley Collier. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and Thank apparently, you. apparently firemen, when they go into houses that are like filled with crap, like hoarder houses, they say, oh, it's like, like a Collier mansion. Like it's like a thing that they say. So- you know, these guys went down in history and then they got played They got played as the Edelman brothers by two legends. So that's that. And we've got a great guest and we'll be right back. Okay, guys, I am really pumped for today's guest. Uh, he is an actor, a teacher of the art of acting, an author, and an all-around theater guru. He is best known for his roles in The Wire, Billions, and The Deuce. But if you watch SVU, you know him as the slightly slimy Evan Braun. And you're going to love it. We got to talk to the very talented Michael Kostroff. All right, Michael, thank you so Yay. much for being here today with us. It's my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I'm shocked you're in LA, to be honest. Why is that? You just, because of SVU theater, I just assumed you were a New York guy. I do my best to confuse people about where I live. Yeah. That's my goal. Uh, um, a local hire anywhere, really. Pretty much. And, <laughs> uh, and, and also, every couple of years, I get itchy and I change locations just because. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I, I've 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 lived both places, and I am currently in LA. But are you a native New Yorker? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you have that vibe. Um, <laughs> and um, so, like, as a native New Yorker, we've talked to some other native New Yorkers on the podcast. Like, is it always like the dream to get Law and Order, and like, so you can perform in your own town, and it's like you know such a classic? Uh, oh God, this answer is going to sound so dickish, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, okay, I'm just going to say it. It's, it's early and I'm not editing because I'm, you know, drinking my coffee. Um, <laughs> I had an, enough of a TV sort of career going that it wasn't like the big thing to ring that bell. Because it wasn't your first thing like it is for a lot of people. Right. I was really, yeah. I'm always just glad to be working. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy to please. And I, you know, 
what's been lovely is how many times they've had me back. Uh, my wife and I counted recently. It's like like eight or nine episodes, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. We lo- we're like, it's like probably four or five. No, they keep coming, having me back. And I love working on the show. It's, there's, it's a really, really great set. It's a great vibe. And I, I mean, I can't say enough about Mariska Argentay. I probably will expound uh, as we go along. <laughs> but she's so, so great to work with and funny. What people don't know is how funny she is. Yeah, I mean, you're our 99th guest, I think. And really? every single person pretty much is like, she's Obsessed. the best person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> so we're, we're like, maybe maybe 100 will be like, nah, not for me. Not, you not know? For but me. I don't like think her. so. Didn't like her. Um, <laughs> Well, she she messes with me because I mean she, she sort of caught on that she could that she could fuck around with me, and so <laughs> so it, there's always something, you know. Uh, when she met my wife and stepkids, she said, "I'm so sorry. Oh my god, <laughs> but you must have gone through." She's just very funny, but, uh, but yeah. So, so that's my very very much too long winded answer to your first question, which is no, it wasn't like I got to ring that bell. It was you know, it was just a great job. Yeah, just yeah. a great job, which yeah. is nice in itself. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, they had you on the first episode as Russian Brides in 2011, where you're kind of like a tax attorney doing a friend a favor. And then suddenly they bring you back three years later and you become one of the most most, like notorious... like smarmy DAs that we have in the later seasons. Like yeah. we we have like a bunch of guys throughout. I, I'm sure you know the actors like David Thornton and Delaney Williams. Like they are both these defense attorneys on the show that are like, you see them and you're like, oh, they're getting hired by rich people. They did it. They're trying to get off. And you feel like you're like the next in that pantheon of guys. Oh, yeah. They only bring me on to defend terrible people. Yeah, but like it's just funny because I was looking at, yeah, I was watching Russian Brides. I go, he was like a nice guy in the first one. It was a different character, different name. It's the only show where they oh, do that. Oh, they have it in oh, they have it in IMDb as Evan as Braun. Evan. Maybe that's a mistake. Lies. Oh, it's um, a lie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had a different name. I'm almost positive. Um, okay, well, that makes more sense. It's the only show where they where they that that I know of where they'll bring somebody back as a different character. Well, well, then somebody needs to edit the Wikipedia, the the, the Law and Order fandom because it, Evan Braun's bio it says he starts as a tax attorney and then oh. becomes. A, you know what? Because- they are probably more right than I am. I, I think <laughs> I, I think there's a better chance that they know better than I do because oh I don't. My God. Tra- I don't track it. Yeah, that, but that we correctly. get off on finding mistakes in oh. things, so we yeah. also. Got kind of excited. I just got excited. I was like, "Yes, we could tell them that they were wrong." (laughs) I mean, we should. I don't know how to look that up exactly. (laughs) I know. I don't know how to figure it out unless we go back. We can watch the episode, see if they say your name. You go watch the episode. Yeah, but but yeah, I was very very nice and and completely inept. And then I think probably somebody watched The Wire and went, "Hey, bring him back as 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 a show." Got it. Yeah. Yeah, Johnny D. Was he so tall? I don't know that. Super tall. (laughs) Super tall. Super tall. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny D, the guy that that, uh, is Benson's child's biological father and a sex trafficking murderer. Well, and that's the only way I get any work. Yeah. I mean, either somebody's trying to convert somebody through rape or bury their mother in a in a freezer or something. You know, it's like one of those things has to happen. Well, and and you have to have a little bit of money. Evan Braun doesn't come cheap, right? No. Yeah. He's yeah. uh he's either on retainer or he's got a hefty. Yeah, fee, but how did these hoarders afford him? That's wild. Maybe they have. That's interesting. It's a good question, and may- maybe the case was just sick enough that I did it pro bono. That you want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm try. You know. That's the wonderful thing about being an actor. I don't have to know a damn thing. I don't yeah. have to know anything. 
They tell me yeah. what, what to say and where to stand, and I do it, and I love it. A million years ago when I was on West Wing, and my character was talking about some particular feature of the U.S. code, and I said to the writer, the writer was very sweet, and he was befriending me. I said, I never knew about that. He goes, I made it up. It's just, <laughs> he's like, this is not a history book, man. Don't You can't trust West Wing to give you facts about how the government works. This oh, my a, gosh. Yeah. It, I said, oh, unfortunately, I people do trust law and order for facts about the law and order system. Of course they do. <gasps> I had a, uh, uh, a lawyer friend, and I used to call her to work on my wire scripts, and I, she'd go, you can't say that in court. So it's, yeah, it's... That's so it's, funny. It's entertainment, friends. It really is. Yeah, we have a lot of lawyer listeners that are like, yeah, this would never happen. Like, right. pro- prosecutors don't go to the crime scene. Like, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So, yeah. um, so... This episode, you got to do, like, your part is, you know, you're defending these two uh, Alta Cockers, I guess, is the name of the episode, and that's, yeah. like, who these guys are. Oh, God, I love and that so one. you get to do this big opening argument to the jury, which is, like, we call it an SVU bingo card moment. Like, you either get carried out of the courtroom screaming, you get to do an opening argument, you know, like, that's that's pretty big for I an love SVU. It. I love you the know? bingo card. <laughs> we should make it. We just yeah. talk about it, but we should make it. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, a, it was beautifully written, and it was just such a beautiful scene, and it was, uh, yeah, we loved watching your opening arguments in this You one. had me. I was like, let them go. They didn't do anything. <laughs> I loved the the gall of standing in front of a jury and saying, "Yes, they put their mother in a freezer, and that's love." Somehow, <laughs> somehow, the, somehow, and I I said to the director, "I said I don't want to pace back and forth. I just want to stand there and say this with a straight face." And it's like it, it's a it's a, it's an insane insane <laughs> argument, but it's yeah, so so beautifully written. It's like they just wanted to be close to her. It's yeah. Like, I mean, I was arguing it with Lisa when we recorded the episode of the podcast. I was like, you know, I don't want to be buried. And I guess some people have a problem with cremation. So, you know, if you've got a freezer, if you've got a deep freeze and you've got the real estate for it in New York, (laughs) I mean, why not? Very strange. (laughs) Very strange world. Can you tell us about any other like uh, memorable moments you've had on the set or in the courtroom scenes or anything? Most of my memorable moments have to do with... uh, interactions with Mariska and her just messing with me. <laughs> and I can, uh, let's see. Tell us. She, uh, I, I am told she's done this to other people where right after they say rolling, sound speed, she'll look at you and go, let's have an acting contest. <laughs> what are you even talking? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Every, every time it's, it's something else. And uh, I came on the set and she said, um, Michael, are you signing up for my seminar? I'm like, what seminar? She goes, I, I have a new acting technique where you just say the line and then you just don't stop staring at the person like this. And then she would just stare at me. And she said, it's especially good if you say things like, um, I don't like pineapple. And you just stare. I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll sign up for that. And then just, she said, you know, uh, this was one of my favorite exchanges. She said, you know, Michael, if you were a good actor, you'd figure out a way to get air quotes into your speech. And I said, but I'm not, which is why I have to do shows like yours. And she was oh. like, she's like, well done. She's like, well done, well done. And I saw her a few days later and she said, Michael, I did it. I'm like, what? She goes, I put air quotes in the scene. I'm like, you didn't do that. Please tell me you didn't do that. She goes, yeah, I did it. So she's, she's. I mean, that's just one, a, a, a few of many, but it's always some some craziness, you know? Yeah. I feel like if you're going to be the, like, the number one on a show for 24 seasons, you got to keep it fun. And it sounds like she does that. 
I mean, at the at the risk of sounding like I'm in a cult, I have to say that <laughs> you know she she jokes around like that. She keeps things light, and then when it comes time to do the work after all these years, she is not phoning it in. She's doing the work. She's really and um, yeah. Sorry if I'm gushy about this, but you know it's not it's not true on every set. And I've yeah. seen her take take aside less experienced actors. And really make them comfortable and really say, so what do you think about this scene? How should we work this? And really collaborate with people. Um, you know, there was uh, one one actor who, it was her very, her very first job. And the way that Mariska kind of just took care of her and didn't talk down to her, but sort of brought her along. You know, there's there's mentorship going on there. And yeah, yeah. it comes down from the top. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, most of my best memories of being on that show have to do with that, you know. Um, gotcha. I was there those... any singing? We heard Raul likes to maybe sing sometimes. Well, Raul and I are both musical theater guys. Yes, we, yeah. Yeah, I saw you're a big Broadway guy. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think we. Uh, I don't think I don't think we ever sang together, but I'm sure we 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 compared notes. You know, we musical theater people get into conversations like who was the who was the best Mama Rose? You're completely wrong, and we you know we'll we'll, we'll break out knives and <laughs> fisticuffs and everything. I mean, you know, we we get very intense about it, but. Um, we became we became friendly. We hung out a couple of times, and I I I, I like him very much. I like him very yeah. much. He's a, he's a he's a good bloke. That one. I um I recently published a book uh, called the Stage Actor's Handbook because I was shocked to find that there's no such thing that has to do with the traditions and the protocols and the way you know the way act, way professional actors are expected to behave when we're working professionally. And we collected quotes from legendary stage performers, and Raúl wrote the most gorgeous thing about the responsibility of of bringing the show every single night and you know he, he was one of the people who contributed to the book he's a Amazing. good guy really good it, guy so it's a sta- it's a handbook for people who are working on the stage or is it for like actors when they transition into television and movies and stuff or no it's it, it it's for for working and aspiring theater professionals theater actors we okay. have a whole you know there's a whole culture back there there, there, yeah. there we have we have just traditions and protocols and expressions and and superstitions and ways of doing things. And it, it's funny because, like, theater people, we take our superstitions seriously whether we believe in them or not. Like, you know, people will freak out if you do the wrong thing because it's like you're not supposed to. Even if we don't believe in it, it's part of the fun of the tradition of the culture. So, uh, yeah, so that I, I just love that he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll contribute some thoughts Amazing. To that. Yeah, the, yeah. the Stage Actor's Handbook, it's called, mm-hmm. by Michael Kostroff. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to make sure what everybody knows the, about that. Um, I guess, biggest mistake you've seen? Was there like a moment that inspired you or like were you ever um, in a production and you saw something and you're like, what the fuck? So many. I mean, there's so many things. <laughs> I mean, you know, what happens is you learn most of the stuff by screwing up, you know? Like uh, once the director leaves, the stage manager is authorized to give you notes throughout the run of the performance. And I very grandly said, well, I only take notes from the director. And somebody tur- pulled me aside and went, uh, uh, no, no, that's not, that's not a thing. <laughs> um, the, the, I think one of my favorite traditions is something we call TTFN, which is take the fucking note. So when we're in a, in a group note sessions, we're, we're all tired from rehearsal and the director is giving us notes. The amateur will, will get into a discussion about it with the director and say, but I thought I did that. And did but, but, but do you mean? And we're like, we all want to go home. Take the fucking note. Yeah. Say thank you. Write it down. <laughs> talk to him about it later. 
But I do think it's it's awesome that you wrote that book because I think that in a lot of ways, in not just theater, but in, in other creative pursuits or other industries, everyone's just like, just get out there, make your mistakes and learn. And like, no one wants to tell you the little secrets. No one wants to tell you the backstage info or like, and it's not like these people are, are going to read your book and be like, now I'm a perfectly professional actor. But like, you know, it's nice to share information. I find a lot of times people... Yeah, people well, just keep information to themselves because I don't know, they want everyone well, to like earn stuff. it. It's well, cuz we stuff. do stand-up comedy and so yeah. it's like you're supposed to move the mic stand right behind you. Yeah. And oh. so when you see someone with the mic stand not moved, you immediately know that they're like younger because yeah. it's distracting and you got to do it. And it's something little and yeah, you should tell people that, but like yeah, you yeah, kind of yeah. learn it. So there's all this little stuff. We have onset protocols. Also, I was working the other day, and I saw a, a guest actress ask the uh, one of the leads to take a picture with her. It's like, Mm-mm, yeah, nope, amateur move. You don't do that. It's not cool, you know. Uh, but I social media now though. Well, I feel Mariska uh, does. I feel like a lot of the people. Oh, she I think, probably does. Yeah. I mean, she's very gracious about it. But my, you know, my my feeling as a guest actor is this. I, I want to help protect the bubble, meaning uh, meaning the, the, the leads are at work. They don't want to have to be on celebrity duty, you know. They don't want to deal with you being like, oh, my God, it's such an honor to meet you. It's like, we you know, I like when I get recognized. It's really nice. I don't mind, you know, in, in the real world. But if I'm at work, I don't want somebody gushy and, blah, 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 you yeah. know, I want to just do the work. The biggest celebrities I've ever met just want to roll up their sleeves and do the work when they're at work. They know that if they go out in public, they're going to be dealing with people being nervous and wanting to meet them and wanting to take mm-hmm. a picture. But I feel like I want to protect their work environment. That's part of my my approach to that. But um, yeah. But also, you know, I'm big into rules and traditions, and I love that stuff. You know, totally. Yeah. Because we've also talked to a lot of child actors or people who did it when they were kids, and mm. their parents want to meet Mariska. Right. So like the dads are like, we got to meet Mariska. Right. 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 <laughs> Well, you were in the producers, and what 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 are your favorite Broadway shows? Oh my God, that's it's so hard to answer that. There, are I know so, that's so like many. a crazy. It's like, what's your favorite comedian? Well, I also I we we also like to ask, like, what role are you still oh, dying yeah. to do? Dream role. Oh. Uh, Broadway. I, I mean, the top of the list is Sweeney Todd. Um, I think that's one of the best musicals ever. Uh, I love uh, I, I love the obscure ones that people don't know about that are great. There's a great musical called Triumph of Love that's one of my favorites. I, I love Evita. I love, uh, I mean, different ones for different reasons. You know, some of them are mm. just uh, just fun and silly. Um, my husband loves the musical Assassins. Do you know that one? I don't know it as well as I should because I love Stephen Sondheim. I, he I mean, loves Assassins. Yeah. Oh, I, my God. I love Pacific <sighs> Overtures, which nobody really talks about much, you know, all Asian cast written by Sondheim. It's brilliant. So anyway, uh, you know, I'm nerding out here. But um, dream roles, I, I, you know, I always say that what I love best about my career is the variety. So the fact that I get to keep doing different things is, it's more prominent than any particular dream role. I will say that uh, I, I did two of the ones that were on my list a couple of years back. I finally did Mushnick in Little Shop of Horrors. And I did Edna in in uh, Hairspray. And those oh. were both like... Yeah, I loved I loved doing both of those. They were great. I would have great. loved to see that. Wow, that's very it was cool. really it was really really pretty cool. I mean, you know, once you get past, yeah, man in a dress is always going to be funny, but there's also <laughs> some deep stuff in there. You know, in in hairspray stuff about yeah. race, stuff about yeah. body image. It's a it's a really good good show. So yeah, you know. for sure. 
Well, and you mentioned in Law and Order, people get to come back all the time. And we do love Evan Braun, evil DA. Would you ever want to come back as like <laughs> a killer, a criminal? Oh. oh, interesting. I think if I were, if I could come back on Law and Order, uh, on SVU as a different character, I'd want to be like the, the, the kindest most lovely person ever because I, it's so rare that I get to play anyone with a soul. Uh, because I, you know, it's not just law and order. I mostly play these ice cold attorneys. That's like my bread and butter. So it's really cool when I get to do something different. And people who know me laugh because I mean, I'm, I'm a puppy dog. I'm like, I'm like, you know. Yeah, that's the, when we interviewed Delaney Williams, the same thing. We were like, your face comes on screen and people like get mad immediately. And oh, yeah. And he was the nicest man to talk to and such a sweetheart. And I'm sure that's true of like everybody that plays these kind of oh, yeah. slime balls. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think so. And also like my, I'm a musical comedy guy. Like I, I'm, I'm the funny guy who sings a song, and I'll see you at the curtain call. But you know, I, so it's one of the great things about being an actor is like you don't know where it's going to take you. You don't know what, 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 how, how people are going to want to cast you. And I, I love that I get to put on this mask, and people buy it. Like you know, Wire fans will come up to me with a huge smile and say, "I hate you so much." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, which is great. It's honestly no kidding. It's a compliment. You know, I'll tell you my favorite story about being recognized. Please. So I'm walking along, you know, my Upper West Side neighborhood, and this woman from Con, from Con Ed, you know, the power company, she says, hey. I said, hey. She goes, you're the lawyer from The Wire. I said, yes, yes, I am. She goes, oh, wow. Are you really a lawyer? I said, no, no, just an actor. And she says, oh, damn, I really need a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that conversation. Oh, man. I she thought she that. really lucked into some free legal advice on the street, That's man. That's right, yeah. Wait, and are you are you always teaching acting classes? Mm-hmm, yeah. And is it independent or with a place? It's independent. Okay, yeah, cool. I do two of them online and one of them in person in L.A. Okay, cool. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tight list, <laughs> you know? It's... It's not not snotty, but just just sort of like yeah, it's, it's gotcha. working professional actors. But I love doing it. I, it's 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 I just love actors. You know, like it's a, it's a joy to work with them. So it's you know whether it's coaching, directing, yeah. teaching, acting, all that stuff. It's just working with them on SVU. You know, it's it, it's I just really dig my tribe, as I put it. Yeah. Know? Well, let me ask you this because I paid for coaching one time, and this yeah. just happened to me yesterday, actually. Too. I paid for coaching one time and I did this whole session and then I go in and what they tell me in the audition is like the opposite of what this coach has told me. Like it's the opposite. They're like, you don't, you want to play it this way, blah, blah. And I'm mm -hmm. like, okay. And then you just have to like readjust on the fly to everything you just paid someone to help you work on. It's like so, like yesterday I read an audition to my husband and he goes, well, this is Disney. So I think you got to kind of play it like, like pretty like, uh, uh, you know, like over the top a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I get on the audition and she goes, I know it's Disney, but it's like not over the top. It's very grounded. And I was like, everybody I ask to help me tells me the wrong thing. Well, okay. So I'll, I'll say this. I, I don't think coaches should be tasked with being psychic. You know, right. what I try to do with the actor is, is some detective work together. What do you think about this? Why do you think you say this? What do you think is going on? Mm -hmm. And sort of unpack it together. There is, and I've, I've said, I can't tell you how many times, look, if this idea doesn't land with you, I want you to not do it. I want, I want to hear back from you if you go, yeah, I don't see it that way because you're the artist who's doing the work. Mm -hmm. But also, it's, 
it's perfectly possible, we've all had the experience, that you get in there and they give you an adjustment. I, what, what, what actors are always afraid to do that they should do is say, I love that. I'm going to step outside and work on this for a minute because it's very different and, I, and I'll come back. You know, because we're all so scared. Oh, and it's like— I would never think I could who, do that. Who wouldn't, re, who wouldn't <laughs> respect that? You know, <gasps> well, that's a power move. Wow, it, I should do that. Of course, and it's not you know, it's not snotty. It's not you know, but you know, and if you have a casting director who says no, just do it. It's like, you know, I'm going to step out because it's it's it's. It, I want to really make sure that I hit what you've yeah. asked me to do in a respectful, nice way. But we don't take up any space, you know. And I and I feel like that's there's that option, and also, you know, God, I you know, I I I teach a course called Audition Psych 101 that's about the psychology of auditioning because so much of this is psychological. Like, uh, uh, like a lot of this is the interpretation of, oh, fuck, I've got this adjustment and it's a test now instead of going, oh, interesting, let me try that as an artist. Mm-hmm. That might be kind of cool. All right, let's see what we come up with. And it's it's really so much in the framing and how you interpret what has happened, you know? Like, oh, some of us go, oh, it's a trick. They're trying to fuck with me. It's like none of that stuff is going on. It's all interpretation. So now when I get, I, I think of it like a little collaboration acting class. If somebody's like, I think it needs to be angry, and I'll, I'll go, huh, okay, let me try that. Let's see where we go with that as opposed to, now I got to deliver, you know? And I think it's yeah. okay if it, I, I think if you if you spent time working on the scene and landed on different conclusions, it's okay. You've got, you still got the exploration under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. But you got, I'm sure throughout your experience, I hate mean casting directors. Oh, yeah. There's like these incredible ones and I love them so much. And then there's some where I'm like, can you make me feel more like shit? Listen, I'm very big on the dignity of actors. And I, I believe in something I call gracious strength. I've st- I, like, I, this is what I came up with after working with a bunch of famous actors. I'm like, what is it about them? You wouldn't fuck with them. And also they're the nicest people in the world. Gracious strength. I, mm-hmm. or, or, or my version of that is what would Judy Dench do? So <laughs> I feel like if Judy Dench had a really nasty casting director, she'd say, you know, I really don't let people speak to me this way. So I'm going yeah. to go. I'm going to go. And I'm going to wish you, wish you well with your casting, but I'm just not interested. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like I, I, I have within me the the option of doing that, of saying, you know, I, I think this is not going to work out, so I'm going to go. Oh because gosh. I don't need to have anybody speak to me that way, and I don't need to teach them not to speak to me that way, and I don't need to be indignant. Mm-hmm. But I sure as hell, I, I, listen, like most actors, I, my self-esteem is not so great. I don't need help <laughs> taking it down. Sure. I really don't. I really don't. So um, I, I think what we're doing wrong is is tolerating that. Yeah. Why? Do we think it's going to lead to getting a job or people respecting us? No, it doesn't. It's it's not yeah. like if I let you abuse me, you're going to cast me. No. I think they're more likely to, to think of you as a respectable contender if you say, yeah, you know, the tone is not not good for me. I, I'm going to mm-hmm. need to go. I, You know, I, I'll be happy to take your notes, but I don't need the attitude. Yeah. Oh, my God. What would happen? What would happen? I love that. WWJDD. What would Judy Dench do? Try it. Try it. What would Judy Dench do? Wow. I think I think she would be really nice about it. She says, I'm getting some hostility, but I'm interested in your note. What would what explain help me understand the note? You're like I, teaching power moves and acting. Listen, I know. I've I've had to because I come from such a damaged, fucked up childhood. <laughs> this has been like a lifetime of therapy. But it's like it's I I have to protect all that stuff because otherwise I'd be like I'll be on you know sleeping under my couch for a, for a week you know <laughs> drinking and crying 
Well, do you have anything like coming up that you want our listeners to check out? Something that's coming out soon, or I'm sure they're going to have you back on SVU soon. They will. I mean, I'm you know I'm not I'm not much of a promoter. It's like I, people find me or they don't. But I mean, yeah. I, I I just filmed an NCIS where I was not a lawyer. It was very Ooh. exciting. I loved the role. I don't know when it's on. November. 13th, 11th, 17th, someplace in mid-November. So right. uh, I'm that's excited. on. Um, you know, I, I'm big into my book right now. So if there are, you know, aspiring or working professional stage actors out there, uh, yes. stage, the Stage Actors Handbook, you can get a drama bookshop in New York. I love supporting the um, actual physical independent bookshops. Yes. Um, I don't know. I got stuff. I got stuff going <laughs> on. Amazing. Amazing. Booked and blessed, as we say. Yes, booked and blessed. Obsessed. Yeah, he's cool. Like, you are immediately like, I'm getting on the list and going to take his acting class. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just like, um, you know, we get to talk to a lot of people who love their work, and it's a privilege. Yeah. And it's cool. Send someone that, you know, likes to sing and wants to help other people and advice and cares for shit. Like, I like it. Yes. Um, Yeah, theater traditions are funny. I remember from high school, it was just like so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Five. Um. Um, And I still do it all the time. And I wonder if people are like, shut up, you dumb bitch. But they really ingrained that Well, and the superstitions are so funny too because you have so many superstitions as a Russian Jew. Like I'd have never heard of like half your superstitions. And I'm a very superstitious person. And I do a lot. And I, yeah. Yeah. I'm in tune with that part of, uh, I was going to say my universe. Yeah, but then I was like, (laughs) or psychosis. Like we don't really know. (laughs) We don't know exactly what it is. But you know how I've had like kind of a peeing problem mm-hmm. where I'm constantly peeing nonstop. Like I can't stop peeing. Yeah. I've really like been harnessing energy to stop that. And I've really been able to like not have to pee constantly. And it's felt great. cool. Yeah. That's now I great. have to pee. Now immediately I say Now it, I as soon pee. as you say it. Yeah. But on the flight, like I usually I pee six to 10 times for a cross country flight. And this time only twice. And I was like, look at me. Oh my God, did I ever tell you I flew to Hong Kong once and never peed? Yeah, it's kind of rude <laughs> and bragging at this point. I'm telling you my struggles that, like, no, me having to pee has ruined my I'm, life. I think I'm dehydrated. I don't think it's bragging. <laughs> also, I took a sleeping pill, so I was asleep for like 10 of those hours. Anyway, what did we learn? Don't be a fucking hoarder, don't put dead bodies in the fridge. You know, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. The postmortem on this episode is a little bit. Weird. I have just, a good one. Get over grudges, but I'm yeah. I'm in a fight that will never end. But, but get don't be in grudges with your siblings too. Like Kathy and Kyle, we are watching everything that's going on with Kathy Hilton and Kyle uh, Richards. The way they punish each other with not being able to go to each other's kids' weddings, it seems so fucked up. Yeah, yeah. I don't like. I don't think Kyle did anything that bad, and it's like. But the, but here's the thing. I know we're going into a full tangent about the housewives right now. Everybody give us two minutes. Everything on Beverly Hills is so hidden. I don't think we, like, they're not open like a lot of other seasons. Like, we don't know what some of this real shit is. Like, maybe Kathy's got receipts on Kyle, and I bet fucking Kat, Kyle has receipts on Kathy. Like, I think they've both done a lot of shit, but I think at the end of the day, you gotta be like, this is my sister. We're going to the weddings. You know what I mean? Like, 
I've gotten, the only people in my life I've ever physically fought are my siblings. The only people I ever really scream at are my siblings or Jared, you know, like, like I just, you gotta make up with your siblings. They're like, you're, you know, it's just like your family. Unless, listen, if you have like a toxic sibling that you've cut out, okay, that's a different story. But like general fighting with your sibs, it's like, you can't miss out on big family and no Shit one is like perfect, but I don't think, like, it's like, they're just mad that Kyle puts it out there, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Well, these two brothers, it feels like, I mean, in the real life story, they protected each other till the end. They were like thick as thieves. In this one, I think they wanted to let these two classic actors have a little bit of, um, you know, play off each other a little bit more. So instead of them loving each other, they hated each other. It was like definitely a good TV choice. But yeah. they also had this deep-seated secret that they never shared with each other. And like, you know, I think that they've lost a lot of time with each other. Yeah, I was going to say, and go out for walks. You know what I mean? We can always be reminded. Yeah. You got to take a walk. Get well, you can steps, go out for walks. Get some air. It's, it's okay to go out for walks and also not bring home like broken baby carriages and like, you know, whatever old piano you find on the street. Like you don't have to bring that stuff home. Uh, but yeah, hoarding is, hoarding is real. Um, this episode, great set design. <laughs> yeah, and obviously... It feels like the real victim of the episode is in the very beginning with um, the character known as Bobby getting uh, murdered because the rest of it feels like, the rest of the episode feels like it's all kind of victimless. Like the mom died and then they just like left her in their house. I mean, like, yes, they they put, they euthanized their mother I think essentially, ju- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there was a yeah. pillow. I think there was yeah, a Yeah, they euthanized her, but like they, like the doctor was like, they, she wouldn't have had much longer. She was probably in a ton of pain, could barely breathe. I think they did what they thought was best for their mom. And then like leaving her in the freezer, you know, eccentric. Um, but of course, also always teaching our kids to, to say no secrets with adults and shit like that, like what would happen to them two men as when they were younger, you know? Yeah, no no secrets. secrets. Tell people. Tell your brother. Jeez Louise. Anyway, I'll just segue into what would Sister Peg do, our um, weekly segment where we direct you to an organization, a book, an article, something to help you learn a little bit more about what we discussed on today's episode. And I wanted to point you to... Um, it's kind of like it. It's not really an article, but it's like a section of the uh, Glad website. That's uh, Glad is G L A A D dot org, and they have like a. There's a link that we will obviously put in our show notes and on our Instagram. That's just entitled "The Angie Zapata Murder: uh, Colon Violence Against Transgender People Resource Kit," and it covers a lot of the timeline of Angie's murder as well as facts and figures on the murders of transgendered people across the country, which has truly become an epidemic and needs to be, um, you know, ended as soon as possible. And it helps, uh, it also helps you decipher hate crime laws based on the state you live in. And you can check that out in our show notes. And always all of our What Would Sister Peg do's are chronicled in our Instagram story called WWSPD. I don't know how to transition from the sadness. Um, but, you know, on we go to another episode. And uh, next week we'll be doing Paternity Season 9, Episode 9. Watch with us. Also, did you know that the new season's not on Hulu? It's only on Peacock now. Oh Yeah. Season 24 is season now only 24. on Peacock. No Hulu and... Interesting. Um, thank God I stole my friend's jewel, my friend Julia's uh, peacock. So I'm there. But yeah, you also had to. I watched the first two of the crossover on Hulu, and then had to go watch the other one on Peacock. Even though I didn't really finish it. 
Thanks for listening, guys. Get tickets for the tour at thatsmessuplive.com. We love you. Bye-bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstar, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.